walking in a country road, and I've been chasing after my shadow. Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode forty-six. I'm Dave Woodson. Nobody asked me my name. I love guidebooks. Long before I became a guidebook author, I was already an addict. My bookshelves were lined with things like four different copies of the Confraternity of St. James Guide to the Camino Frances, three different Italian language pseudo-guides to the Via Francigena, books to routes I hadn't walked and had no plans to walk, books in four different languages on the Camino del Norte. I'll never forget the experience of getting a copy of Alison Raju's first Cicerone guidebook, linking Le Puy-en-Velay to Santiago de Compostela. While I was only walking the Camino Frances at that point, I kept turning again and again and again back to the color picture of Estang in the book, A Town on the Lopui Route. I was just struck by the magical sight. It would take me another 11 years to finally make it to Estang, but the reality lived up to the dream, the dream that was ignited by that picture in the guide. It's remarkable just how much guidebooks have changed and improved since I've been consuming them. If you go back to those earlier books, the maps are spartan at best, elevation profiles are uncommon and often built from a very small collection of data points. Meanwhile, today's layouts are far slicker and the proliferation of online information has generally elevated the quality of accessible material. And now, in recent years, we're seeing tons of alternatives to guidebooks, with smartphones, GPS tracks, and apps all encouraging some pilgrims to pursue different media for information. Within that surrounding context, there have been two new and prominent guidebooks published on the Camino Frances over the last year. The Moon Camino de Santiago Guide, written by Bibi Barami, and the completely overhauled Cicerone Camino de Santiago Camino Frances book by Sandy Brown. Given that there are already a number of established books on the Frances, I was curious about the thought process that informed the design and development of these new pilgrim guides. Fortunately, Bibi and Sandy were willing to join me for just such a conversation. The goal here is to think about the decisions being made behind the scenes when guidebooks are produced, while also learning about what makes their specific guides interesting and useful and distinct. The circumstance of publication date brought them together in this episode, but as we'll discuss, it's a happy accident because as it turns out, their guidebooks mesh really, really well together. So that's episode 46, three guidebook authors and guidebook consumers talking shop. Hope you enjoy. I'm joined now by Bibi Barami and the Reverend Sandy Brown. Bibi is a cultural anthropologist and the author of two travel narratives on Southwest France and three travel guides, most notably, for our purposes, the Moon Guidebook to the Camino Frances. Sandy is the associate publisher for Caminos and Pilgrimages at Cicerone, which kind of makes him my supervisor, and the author of Guides to the Way of St. Francis and a brand new one on the Camino Frances. Thank you both for talking with me. Glad to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. When I reached out to the two of you, I said, my goal here is to have a conversation about your 
Camino Frances guidebooks and then guidebooks more generally. And coming from the starting point of I am, on one hand, a guidebook author, but more than that, I am a prolific consumer of guidebooks. I love guidebooks. And if I'm going to walk somewhere or if I'm going to travel somewhere, I want to have multiple guidebooks. So I value that. And I think it's interesting to hear about the different approaches that guidebook authors take. So that's our goal here. So let's start with this. Before we get to your books, I'm interested in who you are as consumers of guidebooks. If you are preparing for a pilgrimage, What's your approach? Do you have a physical guidebook with you, an ebook? Do you use an app, GPS? And what do you value? And BB, let's let's start with you. I confess I'm also a consummate consumer of guidebooks. I love them. I think each guidebook is a capsule of cultural information from a particular perspective. And when I'm looking for them, I'm look I'm looking at all of them and I collect them. <laughs> you know, especially for places I love. So I think I have almost all the guidebooks for the Camino Frances and a few for the Norte and a lot for France and northern Spain. But I'm really looking for all the various different perspectives and especially the local knowledge, whether it's a guidebook writer who's come in from the outside and has become a local by living there and immersing like an anthropologist would or a local or regional writer from that area. They all interest me because they all have something to offer. And I also come to it from travel literature as a genre. You know, in anthropology, that's one of the things I studied were all the historical narratives. And that's where I really learned, even if they were skewed, you know, and even if today some of those historical narratives are not politically correct, they were guidebooks as well. They were guides to a place and a people and an experience. So I love reading them all. <laughs> and then I try to pick one to take with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, for me, I guess I started as a guidebook connoisseur. And now I kind of also have one foot in the app world. So what's happened to me over the years is that I've come to recognize guidebooks as a good resource, but sometimes I want to explore someplace without a guidebook too. And so I may buy the guidebook and then leave it at home and <laughs> then go with my smartphone and look at the an app or look at my smartphone to know where I'm going and then refer back in my mind to the guidebook and also to read it afterwards. And so I love guidebooks, but I guess I also recognize that sometimes you don't want to walk with a book in your hand, but you do want to have a reference available to you. And so I guess I've kind of done all of the above. I've walked with a guidebook in hand, like on my first Camino, and then I've done it by memory. And then I've also walked with guidebooks as ebooks and Kindle books, which is a little bit frustrating. Because you're in two media there. You're in a print and you're also on your smartphone. And then I've done just with apps. And I have to confess that the more I've been writing guidebooks, the more I'm going back to the same old walks that I've done before. Because I want to refresh my mind. I want to do an update of the guidebook. And so it's been a little while since I've done a brand new walk. Although I hope that Europe will open up on schedule and I'll be able to go later this summer. That actually you know, reminds me another part of preparation that I bet both of you also do is learning a language, or even if it's the rudiments or reviewing the grammar of, you know, whether it's Italian, Spanish or French, because that is also a guidebook that allows you to, you know, walk into 
fresh territory, whether it's been covered or not, with or without a guidebook and talk to the locals and ask them, hey, where do I find this? What's the best experience here? You know, where should I get the best coffee or so that's a part of, I think, that guidebook preparation, too. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then the guidebook writer ends up being an interpreter of the language and the culture for the reader. Yeah. So I know, or I imagine Dave will ask us about this at some point, but the guidebook becomes an essential resource. Otherwise, you're walking blind. And I hate to criticize anybody that has sight challenges, except that just what you see on the ground is not enough to really comprehend the area where you're going. There's too much that's invisible or that's not described by signs on the ground. You really have to have somebody that studied it and can interpret it and open it for you. That's the goal. That's absolutely the goal. And it's a lot to ask for in a book where we have the continuing pressure to make it smaller, lighter, and easier to carry in a pocket or in a, a small compartment in a backpack. There's those dual pressures to be thorough and comprehensive and light as a feather. <laughs> Can we yeah. just all agree that word limits are like the work of the devil? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's funny, right? Because on one hand, I remember when I was doing my first guidebook and I wanted to go back to the publisher and say, why can't we just have like the ebook version? It could be infinitely long. So why can't we just have two versions, the print version that's more compressed and the ebook version that's longer? Of course, the layout folks don't like that. But part of me is of that focus now that's just like, why can't we have it all? <laughs> Let's cram it all in. Exactly. But there's value. I mean, I think that this is one of those things as well. Like part of the importance of the guidebook author is to be selective, is to be able to go through all the noise and try to judge what is the stuff that the person needs to read. Because this guidebook may well just be consumed in a five-minute chunk over a cafe con leche in the bar. So the pilgrims should be able to get what they need out of that quick burst of consumption. Yeah, yeah. that's so important. That's the good side of word limits. So like right now, I'm working on a guidebook. I'm about 10% over the word limit. And I'm doing that important work while I tear my hair out of making sure that only the most important information is there so that the reader doesn't have to sort through all the chaff in the meantime. And we will get there, I think, probably in more detail to really see where your philosophical perspectives kick in about what's important and what's disposable as we go deeper into this. So let's talk about your Camino Frances guidebooks specifically, because I think they are the two most recent English language guidebooks to the Camino Frances. Some of the established ones, of course, have annual updates, so they're refreshed each year, but these are completely new. Cicerone's long had a Camino Frances guidebook, but this is a total overhaul that you have just authored, Sandy. So I'm curious because from the outside looking in, it might be easy for people to say, Briarly has long been the established guide to the Francais. You have the Village to Village guide. You have the Confraternity of St. James, No Frills one. You have Wise Pilgrim that's really like taken the app world well underhand. So all of these established guidebooks out there, as you come along to add something to the market, when you were going about crafting your guidebooks, 
What were you thinking about in terms of distinguishing yourself or just generally making your book a useful new addition to what's out there? And Sandy, maybe we'll start with you this time. Well, we looked at the other existing guidebooks and BB's guidebook was, I think, not available when we started this project. (laughs) So we looked at the other guidebooks and we said to ourselves, we want to do a step beyond what each of the existing guidebooks has done and try to do a state of the art using the multiple approaches that many people have done. So for instance, one of the guidebooks has a stage map for every stage. And we wanted our stage maps to be north up. We wanted them to be in scale so that they could be easily recognizable for all of where they are. So if you're walking east to west, we wanted to show that you're walking east to west. And then we also wanted to be able to provide a large number of village and town maps. And so we have something like 105 village and town maps that locate the albergues in each of those places. So we wanted our maps to be really good. We wanted our accommodation listing to be good. And we set up a grid of about 16 pieces of information and then contacted all the albergues to get that information about each one. And then we wanted to describe the walk in a way that a person could sit the night before, open their book, and have a sense of what's going to happen in the day ahead. And then we balanced all the various different pieces of information that we could also include with those as the primary pieces. Oh, and another thing is we wanted to include Finisterre and Mushia, which added five stages you know, three to Finisterre, one from Opital to Mushia, one from Finisterre, Mushia, and back. Then we had to play with all that against the scale of the book. And so we ended up taking the most popular guidebooks, taking their Saint-Jean to Santiago, their Santiago to Finisterre, Mushia, and their map book, and putting those all together and said, that's our maximum weight limit. <laughs> so now what can we do within that? And we end up being one ounce less than that. Well done. <laughs> so. And that's the combined weight of the guidebook and the map book. That's right. Yeah. Versus those three volumes by the author whose name you already mentioned. <laughs> BB, what was your approach? Very, very similar. You know, looking at all the guidebooks that already existed and how they worked and how they worked well. And, you know, both from my own experience as well as from the experience of other trekkers and pilgrims. And knowing that we needed to capture all those practical details, you know, about accommodation and the trail and trail notes get a lot of coverage on the maps and the guidance. But also we wanted to to bring in more information that we felt was missing in the other guidebooks. And that was one of the things that I loved about being commissioned by Moon to write the new Camino de Santiago guidebook was they're known for going into kind of uncharted cultural and historical territory and experiential territory. And they give their authors a lot of freedom to say, you know, really make it your own and bring your voice into it, but also offer this broad experience that anyone who picks up the guidebook can engage in and and have their own experience. So we were also talking about, you know, as an anthropologist, I wanted to bring in all the folklore and all the cultural information and the food and wine information, the historical information that over 30 years I had studied as while I lived on the Camino as well as walked it. 
And they were excited about that because that was a little different. It was kind of like taking the cultural handbook of the Camino, that big, thick tome, and merging it with a guidebook. But it's a challenge, you know, because you also have to say how much does the reader want, especially since they're committing to carrying it. And we really went for representing every region holistically and well, but capturing all of those different layers from the practical adding in more information about food and wine experience and also where to eat. That You might get some of the best pilgrim menus or you might just get off the pilgrim menu for a day and experience some of the more different dishes that, that may not necessarily appear on the 10 euro three-course menu del peregrino. <laughs> and then thinking about the, the maps. And similarly, we knew that people really like orienting themselves in space and that the maps of the villages and towns was as important as the trail maps that we presented. So a lot of layers. And then it it came in larger than we originally wanted it. But my editors really looked at the information and said, well, we want to keep this. This is really interesting. So we really sharpened and honed it down as tightly as we could without losing the information. And then I learned that they went and researched paper around the world to find the lightest paper that you could get the highest quality of print on. My guidebook, if you look at it, it looks like a typical moon guidebook that is about 350 pages long. It's the same width and size, but it actually has 520 pages in it. (laughs) So that was a Santiago miracle right there. (laughs) That's great. It's amazing how much you end up thinking about paperweight as you go through this process. I mean, I've had this discussion with Cicerone publishers for years, like one of the most commonly criticized aspects of the books I had for years from Walkers was, why do you have such heavy paper? (laughs) (laughs) It's high quality, though. I love the Cicerone guide. It is a little bit lighter now. So I was stunned when I opened your guidebook the first time, BB, because I opened it and I was like, "This this is a travel book it almost felt like a different Mm. genre from guidebooks, right? Like you have the top 20 highlights when you open it and you have a lot of those elements that, you know, when you read a guidebook, you're used to seeing kind of a a real bare bones summary of a lot of things. And the moon guidebook that you've produced will be really familiar to people who are coming into this from a travel background. It's speaking that language really clearly, I think. Well, I really was hoping that for the pilgrim who picks it up, that it would be something that they'd enjoy reading at night as well and say, where am I? Where was I? And one of the things I learned early when I made my first trek on the Camino Frances was how many people, by the time they got to Santiago de Compostela, were saying, oh, I missed Unate, the Chapel of Unate back in Navarra. And now I hear it was like one of the highlights of this whole trail, a historical 12th century octagonal church. And I wanted to write a guidebook that sort of really called out, you know, don't miss this or consider not missing this, but know about it, you know, and why. So I really wanted people to have a historical and an archaeological and cultural resource in their pocket so that as they were walking through a particular landscape that day, they would be alerted to the left is a, is a Celtic Iron Age hilltop fortress. And you can actually walk right through it if you just make that 200 meter detour. But it's hidden. You know, if you didn't know it was there, you could walk right by it. I wanted to really include that. That was a big part of the thinking behind the travel experiential aspect of it. Bibi raises a point that was important for me, too, and that is all about the purpose of a guidebook. Because 
you know, you mentioned a Castro. So my wife and I were walking together in 2018. And I said, you know, I've never gone to the Castro Castro Mayor. Right. So let's do it. So we turned left on the path and we walked up to the, it's almost like a dike that's around it, to the uh, berm, I guess we could say, and looked down into it. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have neglected this all this time. <laughs> so we're standing there. On the left, there are the walls, the low walls of this 2,500-year-old fortress. Then we look on the right, and there are all these pilgrims that are just walking by. Because you can see the trail not yeah. more than 50 meters away. And I'm thinking, these poor people, they're probably only going to get here once. And <laughs> it took an extra three minutes to walk over here. And we're yeah. seeing something astounding. But because they didn't open a guidebook, they're going to miss that today. And that's the value of a guidebook. Even if you leave it at home, can mark in your mind the things that you want to see so that you make sure you don't miss them. I love that I love you brought up that Castro because, you know, when I first came upon it, I became an evangel, you know, I was just <laughs> an evangelist. Everyone was walking by it and missing. I was like, no, guys, come here, come here. You have to see this. It's and I, that's free. one of those things. You just, it's free. And, it's, and it won't it's, take any more time. <laughs> it could be life changing. Um, <laughs> but I also think what you're saying reminds me too, that to be a guidebook writer, you have to remain humble. You have to keep knowing there's stuff you don't know. And be yeah. ready to go and discover it and then, you know, bring it in. Uh, that's, that's what readers story. are for, isn't it? I mean, you put out your book and then it sits there and people say, well, why didn't you say so-and-so? Or do you know yeah. you got such-and-such wrong? And then all you can do is gather those things and hope that mm -hmm. you can include them in the next edition. Right. Yeah, yeah, that day you were investigating 25 albergues instead. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Be honest, this is a short detour. Do you read your Amazon reviews? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I keep telling myself I won't, and then I do. And thankfully, the vast majority of people are really, really lovely. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's a little frustrating occasionally when someone gives you uh, two stars because they thought the print was too small. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, yeah. that's just the way that it is. And now that's going to yeah. sit there the whole time. But you're right, BB. Usually people are friendly and kind. Yes. And if they're critical, a lot of the times it's important. I'm a teacher and I once wrote a, a reflection for my students about you're always getting critical feedback from me and I'm telling you that it's important to learn how to take criticism. <laughs> I want to show you me getting criticism and me having to take it and respond to it. And certainly the book is much better today because of people calling mm. attention to things that it fell short on the first time. Anyway, let's talk about some specific choices that each of you made in your books. Because again, not from the perspective of debating what approach is better, but just because I think it's interesting and it reflects these choices that we have to make as guidebook authors about what to include or not to include in order to not have our books weigh 27 pounds. So the first one is the perpetual debate about whether or not guidebooks should include stages. And 
people love to focus on the stages. And I don't know that any guidebook author has ever said this is prescriptive. This is how you have to walk the route. Almost every introduction, certainly mine, says this is just an organizational tool and you should make choices based on what's right for you. Sandy, you include stages in your guide to the Francais. Bibi, you don't. You have kind of a regional approach to it. Well, I do, in a sense, include stages. I kind of did both. One of my opening <laughs> chapters is a sample itinerary. That's true. And so it's it kind of, if I were to do it in stages, those are my recommendations. And then each regional chapter in the very opening pages has a little call-out box that says recommended overnight stays. And it has the distances. So a person could, if they wanted to have stages, look to those two sections of the book or those two strategies. But yes, you're right. I don't, you know, in the day-to-day sections and the regional chapters, I don't say, you know, walk from, you know, Roncesvalles to Zubiri. And I don't do that because there's two strategies to walking the Camino. And some of us first came to it with the stages. And some of us came to it with, you know, my first time I walked the Camino, I didn't have a, a map. I didn't have a guidebook, you know, truth confessions. I had read a lot of historical stuff. And I had a little tear out from a Lonely Planet guide, but it was just sort of a very rough guide. And so I learned that it was actually kind of freeing to walk as far as you can or want that day and plan how far you're going to walk the next day that night and then be open to it changing because it almost always does. That's sort of the beauty of the Camino. And I also really like being able to see the full length of the trail without it being broken into those daily stages. Though I I, I also think the daily stages are a really nice strategy for some people to walk. It it was a hard decision, though, because even I kind of felt like, oh, we're not going to do stages. (laughs) But then when I saw the maps for each chapter that really put out the Camino at its length for anywhere from three to ten days... It was so cool to see the full picture of the trail for a week ahead and and really understand how the contours and the topography and the landscape fit together and what I was traveling through. So it made me feel like I was really more there in this natural and cultural historic landscape. Sandy, what was your thinking in having stages? Well, I did like what you have done, Dave, which is to put it in stages, but try to discourage people from seeing it as stages. Because the bad side of stages is that if everybody follows the exact stages, then there are going to be like 30 towns that are flooded with pilgrims, and there'll be no beds available and such. And everybody ends up with the same experience. And we all know that it's off stage and walk a half a day or walk a day and a half and then go off the stages. And so I explained that, but then also in the back of my book, as Appendix A, I have a stage planning table. And the objective of that was to let people take a pencil, figure out the mileage on their own, and then add up where they wanna go. So in one place, they can easily see how it all lays out. So then I give some options, like a 20-kilometer a day, a 25-kilometer a day, and a 30-kilometer a day option, so they can see how it lays out. But it is funny on the Francaise, because there are some places where you really don't have as much choice as you want. You would think that with the wide-open Meseta, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) But after Carrion de los Condes, there's 17 kilometers where there's no albergue 
you have to walk that in one big gulp. And then you want to stay at Leon because everybody should stay at Leon. You want to stay at Burgos. You want to stay at Ponferrada. And you want to mm-hmm. stay in Pamplona. And so then it ends up that they're actually, if you're really going to enjoy the walk, they're actually fewer options than what you might think. So I don't feel guilty about including stages, but I also want people to plan it on their own. It's difficult. On one hand, you just want an organizational frame. You want to have a convenient way of parceling out the information and and making it accessible to people in more bite-sized chunks. But I think one of the things that is particularly true of the Camino Frances, and, and maybe you could talk about this, is that on one hand, it is a route where the information is abundant. It's out there. But it's also a route where the overwhelming majority of the people who are walking it, it's not just their first significant outdoor challenge. It's the most significant adventure they've pursued in their lives by a fair margin. This is for a lot of people, a huge leap out of their comfort zone. So they're going to want to approach it with that security blanket, with that handholder that says like, this seems overwhelming, but it's okay. And we can, we can make that accessible to you. So how do you think about that when you're constructing the guidebook? Does that come into play? Knowing that with the Camino Frances, more than any other pilgrimage guidebook, I think, you have to know that your audience includes a significant number of people where this is a really bold and daring step. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I thought about in my guidebook was you don't know where people are going to start either. But the vast majority, are. this is their first really big trek in stepping off into a territory like this. So I would think about where are they entering and keep giving information that would help them orient into that particular place and then get started and get going. And I find that after a while, you know, people then start gaining their confidence and saying, oh, there's another yellow arrow. Well, this is okay. You know, just follow the yellow arrows. This is good. But I also, I still wanted people to have, especially because so many are coming to this new and the first time, and it is such an epic life experience, I wanted them to have a lot of the cultural information with them too, because it might be the only time they pass that way. And it would be great for them to have the experience of drinking orujo, a quemada, you know, the orujo that they light on fire and it's a ritual drink in Galicia or stuff like that and where to look for it. Yeah, I agree completely with Mm -hmm. Bibi. The thing is true, capture, as I'm sure BB did, and I'm sure that you have done in your guidebooks today, to capture in your mind who the target pilgrim is. And I think about a friend of mine who is 65 years old, and walking on the Camino for her was the biggest adventure that she'll ever have done in her life. And she did it with her sister. She did it with her father, who is 85 Mm. years old. And they needed a very basic kind of thing to understand the infrastructure and as much of the culture as as we could within the space limitations. But I don't think that's unusual, that that's the kind of person that's out there. I mean, I get the impression that foreign pilgrims, especially Americans and so on, are going to be either recent retirees or about to retire. And there are younger people that do it as well. It's almost like there's a gap. There are people in their 20s, and then there are people in their 60s and beyond who walk. And I think in particular of the person that maybe has never even been to Europe before, and they need a basic understanding of what they're going to see when they walk this epic walk. 
Yeah, I think as a teacher, part of your goal is ultimately to kind of make yourself irrelevant, right? Like you want the students to (laughs) develop the confidence to move forward. To some degree as a guidebook author, and maybe especially with the Camino Frances, part of the goal is to get your pilgrim to the point where they don't feel like they need to rely on you. And the, the first week, they're going to be clutching it tightly. And second week, there's going to be a transition. And, and the third week, then it's, it's flipping through the night before and then not looking at it again. But that's kind of the, yeah. the arc. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, this is the selfish guidebook hope also. That the <laughs> pilgrims are all sitting around the table comparing their guidebooks and saying, oh my gosh, I bought the wrong one. I should have bought this one. <laughs> At one point in my life, just once, I want to overhear someone saying, oh, you have the German guidebook? No, no, no. You should have the Cicerone one to the Norte. If I can hear that <laughs> once in my life, I will rest easily. Absolutely. The Germans are always the best, aren't they? <laughs> the, the Germans always have the best guidebooks. Yeah, in a way, they're the state of the earth that we all hope to have. But it's also striking, right? I mean, the, the German guides are wonderfully efficient. They pack in a ton. And if you contrast it with the books that the two of you have produced, yours are aesthetically lovely, right? I think anyone who would pick them up and just want to be struck right off the top mm. by, like, curb appeal, there is a real <laughs> aesthetic charm to the works that you've produced in addition to the quality of the information. So, I mean, I think it is probably reflective of some of the different audience demands that we're, we're writing for. Yeah. That's a really nice way of saying that German guidebooks are ugly, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I, I like the phrase curb appeal. I like that. Yeah. Hey, Sandy, we have curb appeal. <laughs> There's been a lot of house hunters on the television. So uh, if you could just add a, a granite countertop to your book, then you would have everything. Yeah. I have to tell you one thing about the German guidebook. So I'm walking with a German and we're near Assisi. And she pulls out her German guidebook and she says, I think, you know, on the outside of town, if we turn left, we'll come to a laundromat. I'm like, really? That's fabulous because we all need to clean our clothes. And sure enough, the German (laughs) guidebook was right. There's a laundromat. And so I decided, by golly, I'm going to have a laundromat in this English language (laughs) guidebook that we don't have to find out from the Germans where we can wash our clothes. <laughs> Other than by hand in the, uh, yeah, in yeah, the backyard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Let's talk about a couple of other points of comparison between the books. It's always interesting, this question of, you know, how detailed do you get in terms of the navigational stuff? And for a long time in Cicerone Guides, the default was essentially turn-by-turn directions. And <laughs> I have written those, and it's as tedious as it sounds. But when waymarking was unreliable, that was pretty important. On the Camino Frances these days, the waymarking is great. So I think it's interesting to think about how much detail you need to get into. And Sandy, you have overviews of each chunk of the walk with some distance markers to break it up in between. And BB, you sometimes have descriptions of the walk, especially if there's a split or if it's dicey. And there are other times where you just move on to the next town and you don't really describe it at all. So what went into those decisions? Well, what I wanted to do was, because the way is so well marked, I wanted to have descriptions of laying at their bunk in the afternoon and they're thinking, what's my next day going to be like? They might have a pair of hiking boots and they might have a pair of sandals. You know, what do I want to prepare for for this upcoming day? And what am I going to see in general? So my walking descriptions are pretty much descriptions of the day. 
like you're going to go through a home oak forest and then be walking among farmland. And up in the distance, you'll see Basilica San Gregorio. So that's what I try to limit it to. And it's interesting that I had a collaborating author, too, who wrote the old-fashioned way of the turn-by-turn directions. And I ended up having to go back and re-edit all of that material because, except in a very few places, it's not really important to have turn-by-turn directions. So I did descriptions, and I think that's good also as a person sits at home and prepares for the walk. And it also makes the whole text a little bit more readable because I find it impenetrable if somebody does go 500 meters and turn right at the yellow house. And I had to do that on the Way of St. Francis book, because in some places there are almost no signs. But it's nice and freeing to have a situation where the signage is good and you can just describe it. Absolutely. The Camino Frances is so well marked now, really freed me up from that need as well. And similarly, the descriptions were things that I really felt, you know, I want to make sure, you know, this is what's coming up ahead to either pay attention or to, you know, enjoy that beautiful oak forest and made sure to put those descriptions in. And where it got ambiguous or dicey, I put in some more specific directions. And every night at the albergue that I would be staying in or while walking the trail that day, I would ask other pilgrims, how are you finding the trail today? You know, any any area where it was just like, whoa, what happened to the markers? Or, oh, yeah, there was a yellow arrow, but I got so distracted, I missed it. You know, and I, I really listened to everyone to see, I maybe need to mention something about that. Or this section is just, you know, wide open. It's all wheat field and nobody nobody's having any trouble navigating it. So just say, you know, go through the wheat field you know, yeah. and, and arrive in. It's funny when I hear people talking about getting lost on the Camino Frances, sometimes it's because, you know, you get deep in your thoughts and you you can't find your way out and you lose track of things. But almost as common is they were looking really closely at the book, trying to follow the turn-by-turn directions, and they just, they weren't looking up and they missed the arrows. And I mean, I will always remember when I got Alison Raju's book, you know, getting ready for my first Camino Frances many years ago and seeing the turn-by-turn directions and not knowing whether to feel comforted or horrified. (laughs) You know, like, on one hand, I'm in good hands here, but on the other, like, oh my God, am I going to have to stare at this really closely the whole way? And yeah, like you said, you know, these days on the Frances, you don't need to be looking at a guide the vast majority of the time. The other purpose we haven't mentioned yet is that It's nice also to have a guidebook to show you the alternates and options and variants Mm -hmm. that are out there so you can choose. I noticed my last time walking on the Frances, I got to Calzadilla de la Cuesa and I didn't see any signs for the Roman road until Mm -hmm. after you have to make the choice. So you come to the freeway bridge, there's not a sign saying you have the opportunity to go through Casa Dia de los Hermanos. And so you go straight and then you're on the senda under the trees that stretches on the distance and you miss the opportunity. And some people don't like it anyway, but you should know about that option. And so that's another advantage to the guidebook to describe something that is not clear by the signs. Agreed. And 
I think it remains a big part of the importance of having a guide for the Norte in particular. You know, the Francais, there are a number of options. And on the Norte, it's like, my goodness, I think I have 1,200 kilometers of route that I'm tracking for an 800-kilometer walk just because there are so many options. And if you don't have the guide, the way marks may not suffice to show you what to do. As I recall with the Camino del Norte, it's also not as well marked. So you have that headache, too. Better now. I think, you know, if you look at the history yeah. of my guide to it, there is a gradual shedding away of turn-by-turn directions, and now it is more general just because the marking is better. But still, I mean, it's the variants. The variants are huge. Another example of needing the guidebook to show you places that aren't marked is when you get to Tria Castela, and there are the two stones that point either to go to Saria the short way or to go to Saria via Samos. The last two years when I've been there, the sign to Samos has been painted out in green paint. Like, don't go that way. And so somebody, I'm assuming maybe a local or maybe it's somebody with a business, you know, on the shorter route, they've crossed over that. So anybody that just is following the arrows, they're not going to know that Samos is there, and it's one of the coolest places they can go on the front seats. This is another mild tangent, but just riffing off of that point, I was (laughs) shocked and outraged and appalled when I was in the pilgrim office in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, and they were explicitly almost commanding pilgrims not to take the left fork for descending into Roncevalle through the woods and instead yeah. following the gravel road. I don't know what your feelings are about that route. It's steep for sure, taking the left fork down through yeah. the, the woods, but there is something magical about those woods. And I realize they're looking out for the health and well-being of pilgrims, but I'm horrified that they try so strongly to, to push people away from it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I love that route too. And I just make sure that people know what they're committing to, whichever route they take. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. what they're going to gain, what they're going to lose. And most people get their injuries on that descent. So it's also to say, you know, this is actually a now established fact. Most people get their injuries here. So if you want to not limp into Pamplona, this is a good place to just take it slow if you do take that left. It's a fair point. But I agree. It's give everyone as much information as you can so they make their own informed choice. Yeah. You know, on that specific thing, the first time I walked... I took the steeper route, and it was fun. The second time that I walked, there were some people walking with me. I had decided to take the gravel road. And I said, oh, you can take this route here. And it's steeper and quicker. And and so they took it. But unfortunately, I had given them the wrong directions. And oh. so I got down to once it's bias, and I'm sitting at dinner, and I'm saying, where are these two? And pretty soon... They show up in the back of a Bombero pickup truck because (laughs) they'd had to call for help to get them out of the place that I showed them. And since walking, I can see you have to know where you're going because it's not signed. And maybe it's because of people like me that send people off in the wrong direction that they're (laughs) saying that at the pilgrim office in Saint-Jean right now. Oh, man. (laughs) So one of, I think, the biggest differences between your books is how you approach accommodations and related to that food. And Sandy, you have, how many total accommodations do you have in your book? It's only 600. (laughs) (laughs) 
right. <laughs> it's just, it's an agonizing amount of specific detail that you have to compile for that. Phoebe, I don't know if you know the number in yours off the top of your head, but I would hazard it's significantly less than 600. It's not 600. And yes, and I think the moon guidebooks, and the things that the, the moon team really told me is like, you know, we're not going to be able to list all the accommodations or the vast majority of them the way the other Camino Frances guidebooks do. So really curate, you know, what you think are, and it's tough, you know, because there are a lot of great places to stay, but what you think are the top places to stay in, in all categories. So, you know, from the private family run bed and breakfasts to the pilgrim dorms, to the donativos, you know, the ones that are really run by the municipalities or regions and, and are on donation basis. But I still investigated practically everyone in every place because just to know what was available. And then I listened to pilgrims talk about their experiences and to see, you know, which ones kept rising to the top and staying in touch with people on the ground. But I also made sure in my essentials chapter where there's all the nuts and bolts of preparing for and then things to keep in mind as you're walking or information to have while you're walking in my book. I have a section about accommodations, not just the types of accommodations, but you know, there are lists available everywhere, you know, online and the Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port at the Pilgrim Welcome Office that will give you the comprehensive list of all the Pilgrim dorms, for example. And then there are other places that maintain PDFs of all accommodations, including private inns. And I give all those websites and figure if somebody wants all of that information, they, they're probably walking with their smartphone or their iPhone and will be accessing it there. But it's a tough decision is, you know, yeah. you want to give everybody everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, and with us, because we were putting the app together, we decided we actually wanted to have data on all of the accommodations, not just albergues, but hotels, hostels, and campgrounds. And so we have paid somebody who happens to be my sister to compile all that information. And it took her a year's time. So out of those 11 or 1200, we narrowed it down. So we included only all of the albergues and all of the campgrounds and then a few picturesque hotels and a few casa rurales also because sometimes a town has a couple of those and nothing else. So yeah. we wanted to call it down, but also we wanted to give people enough information so they could choose on their own. For instance, we put the name of the albergue and then a few symbols or letters about what it provides, and then the number of rooms and the number of beds. And to me, that's one of the most telling things. Yeah. So you go into Nahira, and the municipal has one room and 100 beds. That tells you a lot about the yeah. albergue without <laughs> yeah. us having to make a subjective decision. That's objective information. And yeah. then something else that I value is, is there a communal dinner at the albergue? So we have a code that says that there's dinner there. Can you make a reservation? In the old days, most albergues would not allow reservations. Now most non-municipal albergues do allow reservations. And so it also becomes more significant as the Francaise becomes more crowded. You want to know, can I book ahead at this albergue that I want to go to? So we decided that the best way is to provide the information, but in a simple and yet also comprehensive way so a person planning their route can decide for themselves. 
that was our approach, right? I don't know if we succeeded or not. Oh, and I should say the other piece is because we have an accompanying app that a person, when they see it on the map, can press the symbol and get all this information, make the telephone call or send the email that allows them to be able to do that. So otherwise, it would have been really tough for us to compile all of that information, reams and reams of information that my sister mostly has in her head with relations with all these people that have answered her emails and phone calls over this last couple of years. I think the accommodation piece is one area where we're all going to have our work cut out for us in the next few months because of what's gone on with the Camino and the shutdown and some of the albergues haven't been able to survive, let alone, you know, the ma and pa stores and the restaurants and cafes. The part that I'm kind of concerned about is the, the emotional part, the grief of finding places that were beloved that may not be there or just struggling right now. And Yeah, that's right. I don't know to what degree you are personally tapped into a lot of, you know, Hospitaleros. Do you have a sense of what the toll is going to be, you know, based on your informal conversations? Obviously, there's still going to be a lot of stuff shaking out over the next year. How many places are going to be closing? What's your what's your take? For me, since March 16th, when, you know, the state of alarm was announced in Spain and, and everything just was in severe lockdown, I started really tracking and staying in touch with people to see what was happening. And it was a big unknown for many weeks. And then as things slowly opened up, I started hearing word of, well, such and such a place just couldn't make it. And they're probably not even going to open this year, if ever. Other places are trying to work with the new restrictions, which are incredible. I mean, they're necessary, but, you know, you have to clean the kitchen every time any person uses it. You know, it has to be sanitized. And, you know, same with the bathrooms, same with all the... And so they're implementing all these, and it's a huge labor. It's a huge expense to have all that sanitizing equipment. And they can only open at half capacity, and beds have to be spaced apart. So I think it's still a big unknown, but from what I'm hearing, I'm tapped in with people pretty much at least once a week, you know, with different places in different regions. And it's still a big unknown, but it looks like it's not going to be quite the same thing for a while, at least for a couple of years. And the good news is people are saying, you know, for those of us who can hang in there and just deal with this very thin time, this is temporary. As Rebecca Scott said in, in a conversation with her, it was such a beautiful phrase. She said, the future is long. If we can just remember the future is long and this is all, it might feel long right now, but it's temporary and we just need to do our best. And that, that was helpful. But I think it's a big unknown and we just need to keep vigilant and do our best. Yeah, I agree with everything you've said, Bibi. I would just add that Guanze.com has said that about 75% of albergues are open and ready to go. What we're finding as difficulty is that in the case where somebody is closed, we may not have a way to contact them at all, but they may be in the zone where they're really not certain. So it's a transitional moment. And I was just reading today, somebody was asking even though Spain will soon be open to international travelers from outside the EU, could we please not come this year on the Camino? And the rationale that they gave is that many times the hospitalero or the owner is a person that's in a high-risk category for COVID-19. And do we really want to increase their risk by forcing ourselves 
in this difficult year to go ahead. And so it's a balancing act for hospitaleros and owners of albergues and municipalities with all the restrictions that Bibi is talking about from the health departments and so on and the reduced capacity. And then many of us who are anxious to get out there and be on the trails and meet the people that we have come to love or find the adventure that we have been longing for in the depth of our souls. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, my God, don't you just miss it? You want to be back. And I feel for people who have planned their Camino for the first time and had to put it off and they don't know if they'll get back to it. I really, really feel for them. But I I think once the Camino calls you, it's going to find a way to get you there. Just in the right time. It's like every time you stand up and walk someplace, there's a magnetic pull where you want to have your feet actually on one of those pilgrim trails. And, you know, with the relationships and with the new and different things that you see and comprehend. And I am really missing it right now. And I know many are. I'm going to pull us back out to one broader philosophical question that is kind of teed up by the discussion you just had about accommodations. Because in Sandy's case, he talked about really wanting to focus a lot on objective data and the very nature of a more curated approach that BB's taking. And the ways that you describe the accommodations that you include, it's more impressionistic. You are describing kind of the feel of being in the place. And it's something that I've struggled with a lot as I work on guidebooks, is this question of objectivity versus subjectivity. And particularly in the realm of accommodations, though it would also be true of of restaurants, I suppose, where how much of your experience in an albergue is shaped by that moment in time, you know, catching lightning in a bottle, having that incredible hospitalero who's there for a two-week shift and exactly the right pilgrims and exactly the right frame of mind, and it feels magical. But, you know, in other times, it might be a, a perfectly, like, good, if immemorable, albergue experience. So I'm always, I always struggle with, on one hand, part of my responsibility, as you both brought up early on, is, is to bring some expertise to this and to offer guidance. And so if I know that a place is often magical, should I mention that? Or given my own narrow frame of reference, is that as likely to mislead as it is to meaningfully inform? So how do you balance the push-pull of that, of the, the importance of providing expertise while also maximizing objectivity? Certainly there is a subjective element because you you occupy your own experience and history and senses. And we're all scholars as well, you know. And so we know that, you know, you get information from many sources, whether it's other pilgrims and talking to locals and your own experience and really looking at other guidebooks, you know, not just this year's issue, but the year before and, you know, seeing how things shifted. And I, I try to get information from as many sources as I can in addition to my own immediate experience. And I do try to visit every single lodging accommodation in that village or town or city. Um, And it's exhausting. I mean, I'm sure we all build in many more weeks into our guidebook updates than people take to walk the actual trails for that very reason. But in the end, because I do have to curate a select number of of accommodations, even though I give people the resources to find all the most up-to-date lists in the chapter in the back of the book, there probably is some subjective 
aspect coming into it, but it's been vetted through so many other objective pieces of information from, you know, what other people have experienced and are saying and, and what I see directly and from talking to locals as well, that I'm hoping to, to offer the most objective possible. And I also try to think about, okay, if I'm about to write, this is a magical place. Instead, let me step back and say, what's magical about it? So that the reader can go, I, I don't need that kind of magic, you know? <laughs> you know? I mean, if it's magical because the hospitalera greets you with a gin and tonic as you walk in, you know, then some people that's magic or somebody who's, you know, abstaining, it's not. So let them know what the magic is and decide if that's their form of magic. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a very valid way to go. And in general, we steered away, though, from doing any subjective review of the albergues. And a case in point for me is my favorite albergue, which I informally share with everybody on the Camino. And it's a particular one that you too will recognize. It includes foot washing and a communal dinner. And so I just had a fabulous experience at that about five years ago. And I'm like, everybody has to do this. I agree. Then, yeah, <laughs> except. So then I watched the BBC, which has done a pilgrimage series on the Camino Francis. And they take their 10, quote, celebrity pilgrims and go to a few different places. And one of them is my albergue that I love so much. And one of the people had an experience with a hospitalera at that particular albergue, who I know is a volunteer, and I know what country she's from. And she felt that that person was being racist in her attitude toward her. Oh. It's all on the film. And I'm like, okay, it never occurred to me that something like that could happen at that albergue, because I, as a white appearing male had such this experience but what about someone that is a african english female what's their experience going to be so to me that is an argument against giving subjective information about an albergue but by providing objective information i can help people make up their own mind and i'm pretty sure on that particular albergue i did say that the volunteer hospitalers will give uh, or will do a foot washing, a famous foot washing ceremony. And the objective of that is to try to be as objective as possible. Let a person that might be uncomfortable with that ceremony, and there are plenty of people that are, know that it's going to happen. And those that might be attracted to it have that information about it. Let's wrap up with this. It has become maybe a little bit fashionable in some discussion circles for experienced pilgrims to... Talk about why maybe you don't want to go on the Camino Frances. It's the old line. It, it's too crowded. Nobody goes there anymore. But of course, for the vast majority of us, the Camino Frances is our first experience. And it's what lights the fire that makes us want to keep walking again and again and again. So let's just end on a really positive note. What are one, two, three things that really stand out to you as special about the Camino Frances? Why do you love this? Because when you agree to do a guidebook, you are forming a long-term relationship <laughs> with that route. You are going to be going back to it again and again and again. As Sandy mentioned earlier, in place of new and exciting adventures, you're committed. Why are you committed to the Francais? I want to say to everybody out there, do the Francais. 
it's important to do the francaise because of the things that some people hold against it. For instance, people say it's busy. Well, you know what? That's one of the biggest advantages of the francaise. You're going to meet people if you walk. I mean, I also love the Via Francigena. I've probably met a total of 30 people on the Via Francigena in four walks of that over the last years. But on the Frances, I'll meet maybe 30 people a day. And I have, and anybody has a greater possibility of, especially if they're a single walker, of making friendships that are truly valuable and, you know, life-changing. And that happens in a place where you can kind of sort yourselves together and become a Camino family. And that happens on the Francis, less on less traveled trails. Second thing about the Francis is there is a mythic aspect of it. You know, they say the Francis is in three phases. And the first is about your body. The second, you know, your emotions. And the third is about your soul. Or they say, you know, your body gets beat up and then you're walking toward resurrection, essentially. And however you want to think of it in a mythic kind of way, it actually happens on the Francis. Crusade de Ferro has become kind of a photo op place. But if you take seriously that you should bring an item and you should leave it at the foot of the cross there at Crusade de Ferro, Cruz de Ferro, then it can become an emotional, spiritual experience that's really beautiful. I did that once with a German that took the lock that he had put on the bridge in Cologne, Germany, with his girlfriend when they decided to go steady and to move in with each other. And then when they broke up, he unlocked that lock and he carried it on the Francaise with him and he set it at the foot of the Crusade de Ferro. And he wept while that happened. And I got to share that with him as a Camino friend. And then you go to Santiago, whether or not you appreciate that it's the reputed burial place of St. James, It's still an important place with its own history. And then it ends on the coast. If you continue on to Finisterre and Moshia, what is more beautiful in all the world than sitting watching the sunset on a cliffside overlooking the ocean? So I think the Francais offers something that others don't. And everybody that gets introduced to the Camino, I think, should first walk the Francais. Because it's an experience that's different than the others, at least, that I've walked. And then they can compare the others. But because of the mythic aspect and the numbers of people and the possibilities of relationships, I think it should not be missed. Yeah, I I agree. I'm going to riff on related themes because that's very much in my top three reasons why Walk the Camino Frances is because... It is so international. No other of the trails across Europe are attracting such an international crowd of people. I mean, last year, the statistics came in at the Pilgrim Statistics Office in Santiago de Compostela that people from over 190 nations walked the Camino. And the vast majority of them were on the Camino Frances, the vast majority of them. That's where that 190 logged in, you know, (laughs) of nations. 
So it's like a walking United Nations. I mean, if you wanted to travel to one place in the world and meet everyone, this is the place to do it. And it's exciting because you've already left home and stepped into the unknown by becoming a pilgrim. And then you meet people from such vastly different cultures, but sharing such a common goal, not only as pilgrims, but also as human beings, that it really is life-changing. Even for the most secular of people, it is an incredibly dramatic, life-changing, if not one of the most life-changing events in, in a person's life. With that comes a camaraderie that I've not seen on other trails. I've walked on the four main trails in France, and I've walked other trails in Spain, and I've walked in Portugal, and a little bit in Germany, and in England. And they're all beautiful, and they all have a, a sacred and natural magnetism, but they've never captured the camaraderie that you find on the Camino Frances. And with that comes a kind of heightened trail magic where you keep meeting the right person at the right time who has the right thing to tell you of what was knocking around in your head and troubling you or giving you great joy that you want to share it with them. Or somebody turns the corner and, and offers you the very thing that you were thinking, I really need to find this. You know, I mean, whether it's a, you know, something to eat or something to drink or some sort of other piece that you really needed for that day. And then I would add that, you know, it is as the most historic and most documented and most walked route for over a thousand years. It has so many layers that are a part of this legacy and ancestry of the Christian trail. But it also is probably one of the most layered and rich places for pre-Christian influences as well. I mean, you walk through on your way to Burgos, you're going through Atapuerca, which has the oldest human remains in all of Europe. So, you know, start from the, the lower Paleolithic and make your way to the present, and all those layers exist on the Camino Frances. And with it comes that centuries and millennia old human presence that is layered on sacred sites and folkloric traditions, and then those heightened rituals like the Cruz de Ferro ritual. It was easy to commit to writing this particular guidebook, knowing every year I'd have to go back and update it because I don't want to stop walking it. And I'll still want to walk the other trails for that, you know, not having to worry about writing anything <laughs> and just experience it as a pure pilgrim. But man, you know, I don't want to stop having this amazing experience with all these people in this immense natural beauty with so many layers of traditions. Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you both. This has been a lot of fun. And I'll just reinforce, I believe in the value of having multiple guides. And I think your two books, having gone back through them again a couple times before this conversation, they're just so complimentary. They fit together really well. And I think the strengths of each of your books really play off of each other really nicely. So I just recommend them both as a package deal. So thank you both for making the time for this. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, so, thank, you, thank you so much. Thank you, Dave and Sandy. It's a real honor to be with you, too. While we're on the subject of guidebooks, in January 2018, I had my first opportunity ever to meet with the leadership of Cicerone in person despite it being my eighth year of writing for them. It's a long commute from Portland to England. But they were making a short trip around the U.S., and with Laura and me based in Portland and Sandy just up I-5 in Seattle, they pretty much had to come to the Pacific Northwest. We talked about the Northern Caminos overhaul, of course, 
but then the conversation weaved in a number of other directions. At one point, Jonathan at Cicerone asked about other routes. The book you really should be looking to produce, I said, is on the Kumanokoro. More and more pilgrims are being drawn to it for a lot of different reasons. It turns out, though, they were already well on top of that. That's because Cicerone had landed a fantastic new guidebook author, Katrina Davis, who was born in Australia, lived and worked in Japan for a number of years, and then moved on to London. She walked thousands and thousands of kilometers of pilgrim roads, climbed Mount Fuji seven times, through-hiked the PCT. And in quick succession, she authored the 2018 Cicerone Guide to the Camino Portugues and the 2019 Guide to the Kumanokoro that Jonathan had been looking forward to at our meeting. Kat died earlier this year, passing away on February 28th, far, far too young. Her personal blog, followingthearrows.com, is filled with stories from the road and continues to be accessible. The comments posted by other pilgrims in response to her husband's news of her passing highlights how special she was. She's described at different points as kind, encouraging, passionate, vibrant, and always, over and over, as an inspiration. Hers is a loss felt by the whole pilgrimage community, and if you were unfamiliar with Kat during her all-too-short life, go get to know her at followingthearrows.com, where the inspiration continues. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Bibi Barami and Sandy Brown. You can find Bibi at bibivarami.weebly.com. That's B-E-E-B-E-B-A-H-R-A-M-I. While Sandy's online home is caminoist.org. Caminoist. Their new guidebooks on the Camino Francais are available all over the place, including all of the usual online haunts. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWitson.com. Thank you as always for listening. 